LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Thomas Lombardo who joins us to discuss his books, Science Fiction, The Evolutionary Mythology of the Future, Volumes 2 and 3. Even if you think that science fiction is not for you, if you are concerned about the past, present and future of the human species, the Earth and the wider cosmos, you may find much of interest in this extensive interview. Science fiction is the most visible and influential contemporary form of futurist thinking and imagination in the modern world. Similar in many ways to the great myths of the past, science fiction is so popular because, in dramatic narrative form, it speaks to the whole person. Intellect, imagination, emotion, human values and the senses, providing fantastical and visionary stories that engage and enlighten us, expanding our consciousness and inspiring our ongoing future evolution. Hello and welcome, Tom, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yes, uh, good morning and good evening, Greg. Good to be (laughs) here again. Thank you, thank you. So, today, Tom, we're going to be talking about uh, the history of science fiction in relation to the past, present, and future of uh, humanity, of the Earth, and the wider cosmos. And we're speaking on the events of publication of uh, Volumes 2 and 3, of your history of science fiction, Volume 2 being The Time Machine to Metropolis, Volume 3 being Superman Star Maker, and these are widely available, as is Volume 1, of course, still. Um, before we get into our talk, just give uh, listeners a, a brief potted bio. Uh, yes, I'm the uh, director of the Center for Future Consciousness. Um, I'm a PhD in psychology with a strong interest in philosophy and science fiction and future studies. I live in uh, the Phoenix, Arizona metropolitan area, and I've actually been doing a whole series of webinars on the history of science fiction, uh, which you can access through my website, the Center for Future Consciousness. Okay, so uh, as a theme, evolution is going to be very central to our talk um, today because there's a great deal of science fiction from its um, earliest beginnings, it has used evolution as a core concept. We'll get to that in a little while. But where I wanted to start today with was when I was reading through uh, your new books, and I, I I sort of dived in and out of them. This is one of the reasons I like the format. You know, you've broken down your chapters into subheadings. It's very easy to read a little bit and then move forward or move back. And the first thing that caught my imagination was talking about uh, earthbound science fiction. People when you say science fiction, they immediately think of things like Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, in, in the very popular culture. But of course, a lot of uh, stories have been set right here on Earth, uh, sometimes in the past, sometimes in the future, and sometimes, again, in the present. And there are some of the stories that I've found most engaging over the years 
it's a very limited environment, isn't it? The Earth, in a way, but there's so much that uh, science fiction has been able to do with that idea. You know, science fiction stories, you know, right here where we are. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, first thing I should mention is uh, Volume 2 begins with an extensive discussion of H.G. Uh, Wells. And a good deal of H.G. Wells science fiction did, in fact, take place on the Earth, uh, often dealing with uh, uh, future uh, utopias or dystopias on the Earth, uh, the shape of things to come, for example, is a massive study of uh, uh, human history, uh, uh, present uh, global conditions in the world, and future possibilities of evolution of human society on the Earth. Uh, to give a different kind of example, uh, uh, Murray Leinster, who was a popular science fiction uh, American writer, uh, wrote two really excellent, uh, very fantastical uh, novels of uh, future Earth, 50,000 years in the future. Uh, another one would be uh, uh, C. Fowler Wright in The Amphibians, who wrote A Vision of uh, Future Humanity on the Earth, uh, a half a million years in the future. Uh, so often uh, science fiction writers will talk about the future of humans, the future of human society, the future of Earth ecology, uh, on the earth. We have lots of disaster, uh, novels written, uh, such as, uh, the Darkness and Dawn trilogy written around, uh, the turn of the 20th century of a great disaster that, uh, obliterates human civilization and the rebuilding of human civilization on the earth. And atmospheric disasters like the Purple Cloud, where almost the entire human population is uh, uh, killed off uh, due to uh, volcanic eruptions on the Earth. Uh, so we get utopias, we get future humans, uh, we get uh, disasters, we get transformations in the environment, in ecology. We get also, in fact, we get visions of events uh, from the past that are specific to the Earth such as um, the uh, uh, Shadow Out of Time uh, by H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, which uh, dive into uh, ancient, uh, not ancient is uh, too, uh, too weak a word, prehistoric conditions on the earth, and the Mountain of Madness also, which goes back uh, millions of years into early earth history. Yeah, so science fiction definitely explores uh, uh, the past as well as the future, uh, of earthly conditions and will often examine, uh, current affairs going on on the earth, uh, like, um, in, uh, volume three, I, uh, uh, discuss, uh, uh, Nat Shackner, another important American science fiction writer who, uh, uh, discusses, uh, the uh, revolt of the scientists against uh, a government and business organizations in contemporary times. Uh, so we can have analyses of uh, current affairs on the earth as well, too. Well, one of the main initiatory experiences for me in science fiction growing up as a child 
in the 1970s was the British TV series Doctor Who, which most listeners will be familiar with. Um, that popularised science fiction in, in a big way in its day, and uh, still going, of course. And my one of my favourite seasons, actually, was with the third Doctor between 1970 and 74, that ran. But the first season, for basically for budgetary reasons, they say production reasons, but it's lack of money, uh, the stories were all set on Earth. And they, it, it was very creative because they had to think, okay, we're, we're, the Doctor's just staying on Earth. He's not going into space. So how are we going to make this format work? So I really enjoyed that. And, of course, when you, you've mentioned that the Mountains of Madness already, but when you take Earth as, you know, this story will be based on Earth and uh, that's it, you get creative in different ways because then you get into, I guess, what you call worlds within a world. You know, stories like The Lost World or The Land That Time Forgot, uh, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, and of course, the uh, Vril, you know, The Power of the Coming Race, which was a, a seminal book. I, I don't find the book actually very interesting. I don't think it's that well written, but it's very, very important. And then, and the idea that aliens are already here, but we can't see them. And that's why, you know, we, we forget waiting for them to come from space. They're already here. And then you get into perhaps notions of, you know, crypto, cryptozoology, you know, that there are forms of life on Earth here that we haven't seen yet, you know, and that can be explored in the science fiction context. And you hinted as well, you know, um, prehistoric or antediluvian scenarios, because we go back not that far in human history, and it all becomes very cloudy. We don't really know what took place. That's ripe for um, exploration in science fiction too. Oh, yes, uh, uh, for sure. Um, uh, a couple points you just brought up. Vril, uh, uh, which I discuss in Volume 1, um, uh, indeed, it does have a kind of uh, a dry, uh, flat writing style. Uh, uh, one noteworthy thing about Vril, though, is it contains such an incredible variety of innovative ideas, uh, such as uh, uh, human cyborgs, where humans grow up uh, learning how to integrate with uh a, a general form of technology which empowers them. And secondly, uh, that below the surface of the earth, there may be a more advanced form of humanity, which could be a threat to the surface civilization that we live on. Uh, I just mentioned that, uh, because also in Abraham Merritt's, uh, the moon pool, which I talk about in volume two, uh, a group of individuals go down into uh, caverns um, under the surface of the earth and find this incredible complex uh, a civilization of multiple intelligent species who are living right below us, some of whom are very powerful and threatening to earthly humanity. Uh, so, yeah, going all the way, of course, going back to uh, Jules Verne and Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, and even further back, we have science fiction stories exploring uh, uh, the possibility that intelligence or strange or threatening beings may exist right here, right below the surface of us, and we may be unaware of them. Uh, but I also think of, as you were just bringing up that issue of um, uh, creatures may be here already, um, I think of... Um, uh, Rosny the Elder, uh, who was a, a Belgian-French science fiction writer who um, uh, wrote a, a, 
a, a novel, uh, not a novel, a story in which we have a, um, uh, a human who is able to see another dimension of intelligence and existence uh, right here in our own reality that no one else can see. And um, so there may be alternate dimensions that are right here that are just not, um, what would be the word, accessible to the uh, uh, senses uh, of normal humans, but in fact are there. And that's uh, that story was another world. And that's also a story about uh, a, uh, uh, a human born who appears to be uh, mentally deficient, but is actually more mentally evolved than we are. And he is the one who can see these other forms of intelligence and life around us that we can't. Uh, so just as a general point to raise there, Greg, you know, we have a set of senses and a way of thinking about reality, which um, limits what we can apprehend right in front of our nose. And with other senses and with other capabilities, we may find that there's much more to the reality right in front of us than we may even be aware of. And science fiction can get into that and has. Well, two of my favorite um, earthbound science fiction stories uh, that uh, uh, certainly when they start out ostensibly appear, appear to reflect a relatively normal everyday reality that most of us would be familiar with. I don't know if you've seen either of these films, but uh, there's a New Zealand film from 1985 called The Quiet Earth, uh, and that involves this scientific project called Project Flashlight, uh, an experiment to create a global energy grid, uh, very close to the story told in the world, The Flesh and the Devil, and basically involves the human population when you look at it, it's like they've been raptured. They just disappear. Have they gone into some alternate reality or parallel dimension? They're just gone. And it's a story of like what appears to be just one survivor. And then there's um, a Russian film called Stalker from 1979. I, I caught this on late night TV at the end of the 80s. And I was just staggered. I just turned over the channel and this thing was starting. And I, I was absolutely mesmerized because it was like, what is going on in this film? But it was so compelling. And it's basically about a distant future. There's a restricted area called the zone, an area in which the normal laws of physics do not apply. And remnants of a seemingly extraterrestrial civilization lie undisturbed among the ruins. So uh, those are two films I'd strongly recommend if people are looking for sci-fi where things to start out with anyway appear to be like just looking out the window. Yeah, in fact, um, uh, Stalker is uh, based on uh, a novel by two Russian science fiction uh, uh, writers, brothers, the Strugatsky brothers. The novel was called Roadside Picnic, and it uh, uh, was uh, premised on the idea that at some point aliens had visited us had like a picnic on the earth and it left lots of different uh, alien artifacts in a particular zone or area and it just taken off. And the story centers around uh, the novel at least and Stalker, I think I, well, I've watched some of Stalker. Uh, Stalker in a lot of ways is very similar to the novel. Um, uh, Quiet Earth, um, I uh, saw quite a while ago. 
and I liked it, uh, but I can't comment intelligently on it because my memory of it is a bit fuzzy. Uh, but sometime I should go back and watch it again. Um, uh, the World of Flesh and the Devil, uh, the, that movie, of course, I've seen too. Yeah. Yeah, I was more, I was just putting them out there as recommendations, you know. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. Your, your recollection, your knowledge and rec ability to recollect information about sci-fi is staggering. So, but I understand you cannot just recall every detail about every piece of art that's been created. The brothers you mentioned that, that wrote the novel that Stalker's based on, did they by any chance write the novel that the movie Hard to Be a God was based on? Yes, that's the same too. Yes. No, I don't Hard know. That, yes. I don't know if you've seen Hard to Be a God. I can't remember the name of the book it's based on, but that is the most astonishing, one of the most astonishing cinematic experiences I've ever had going to the cinema to actually see that. Would I do it again? Would I watch it again? I highly doubt it. It's just, that's, that's the sort of film it is. You know, I'd say recommend seeing it once. I mean, we went to the movies, me and two friends to see that. It's always also a, um, a bar and restaurant as well as a cinema. If you bought a ticket for Hard to Be a God, you got a free shot of whiskey because they said you'll need it. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. Um, I didn't know they had made a movie of Hard to Be a God. Um, but they were, uh, uh, the most uh, popular of, uh, Russian science fiction writers. Uh, during, uh, the mid 20th century, the, well, the 1960s and 70s, uh, and 80s was in there at their peak. I believe they're, they both have passed away now, uh, not positive. I know one of them has died. Uh, I'm not sure about the other one. Yeah. Uh, so they, uh, uh they may have had a, a number of their novels made into movies, uh, uh, Strugatsky's. Uh, Boris, and I can't remember the other one's first name. Yeah, but Roadside Picnic is very good as a novel, as well as the, the TV version. The, uh, the novel is very eerie and mysterious, uh, uh, and, uh, is somewhat even suggestive of a bit of, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama, which was written a lot later, that, uh, there may be aliens that are so much more advanced to us that uh, they see us like flies or mosquitoes, and uh, they just stop over here for an afternoon picnic and leave their garbage behind and just take off. But it's very mysterious what they leave behind. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, I didn't know about Hard to Be a God turned into a movie, so I'll have to go look for that one too. Yeah, uh, by the way, you know, it's, it literally is impossible uh, even if you devoted 24 hours a day to keep up with how much science fiction gets produced both for the cinema and for TV. I frequently spend my evenings uh, as a way to chill out or relax watching uh, science fiction on TV, TV series or uh, old movies. And there's just an, it's just a never ending, uh, variety of things that I, uh, have, uh, tapped into, uh, over the, uh, last five to ten years. I was watching it before, but maybe the last five years I tend to religiously watch science fiction cinema in the evenings and TV series. And it just goes on and on and on. There's no end to it. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I used to be a music critic and I was, I needed to be in my, 
my sort of genre. I needed to be an expert. I was an expert for many years. I considered myself an expert, but boy, it was hard work keeping up. It was just playing music everywhere you were, you know, in the shower, in, yeah. the, in the car, on the move, yeah. you know. <laughs> right, right. And then going back and watching them again often, I want to go back and rewatch that one uh, because I found it interesting, whatever the case may be, and I don't remember it clearly enough, so go back and rewatch it again. Uh, so I do that as well, too. Uh, right now I'm watching this classic um, kind of B science fiction movie from the 1950s called The Magnetic Monster. And it's rather fascinating, um, even though it's kind of campy. But uh, I have uh, discovered, even though I grew up in the 50s, that there were a ton of B science fiction movies made in the 1950s, often about aliens or about things that were monstrous. Uh, and rather dorky in terms of their plots, but there was an amazing amount of it, uh, done in the fifties. And that's just the fifties. Uh, so, uh, uh, yes, it is, it is, uh, impossible, next to impossible, which I, uh, I have talked about before. Uh, you know, science fiction has inundated, uh, all the different media from initially the radio, and literature and art to the movies and TV and video games, uh, so that, you know, uh, it's all over the place and websites as well, too. It's all over the place. It's permeated into our culture in many, many different forms. And so it's generally, uh, generally speaking, it would be next to impossible to try to keep up with it. You touched upon the idea um, a few minutes ago of different dimensions. And, of course, whether it's earthbound or anywhere else, uh, this idea of there being unseen dimensions introduces lots of locales for that, you know, other forms of life or whatever it happens to be could exist. And then there's a question of, you know, can we access those dimensions? Do, does it, do, do they cross over into our reality at some point? This is something that, that again, quite early on in science fiction kind of came into to play. We've talked before about science fiction influencing science and technological development. But, of course, science fiction picked up on scientific discoveries of the day and, you know, projected forward sometimes. Oh, goodness, the scientists have now discovered this. I mean, what could that mean for our storytelling? The Lovecraftian idea, the mist, for example, you know, the Stephen King story uh, that was made into a movie as well. Uh, that's a good example, mm -hmm. you know, of, of another dimension spilling into this reality with catastrophic results. Yeah, H.G. Um, uh, Wells, in fact, um, early on um, got into the idea of uh, other dimensions. Um, he uh, he did that in um, a short story, which I believe was called the Platner story, in which uh, an individual. Uh, is shocked into another dimension, which in some ways is almost like an afterlife dimension. In some ways it isn't. Uh, but then later on in uh, Men Like Gods, uh, you, uh, a group of humans from our Earth in our time is jolted into a um, alternate Earth that it has ran a... Uh, an evolutionary uh, pathway that's not exactly like ours, and they're shocked or jolted into it uh, because scientists uh, in this other uh, alternate Earth 
are conducting experiments with moving between different dimensions. Um, uh, so uh, Wells, early on in the uh, 20th century, uh, got into that idea of um, alternate dimensions. Um, and I was just thinking of another example, uh, which will pop back into my mind again. Oh, I know the example I was going to use. A popular theme that ran through um, uh, 20, 20th century science fiction, which was influenced by science, it was based on the idea that an atom is like a miniature solar system. Uh, now, eventually that idea uh, lost scientific respectability, but early in the 20th century that idea was very popular. And so we had people writing stories of shrinking down in size or expanding in size and going up to the next level or down to the, the, the smaller level where our, uh, where in one atom in our universe turns into a whole universe in and of itself or our whole universe is an atom in a bigger universe. And so, uh, there's a very famous science fiction a uh, story called He Who Shrank. And the uh, main character in the uh, uh, story shrinks down through what looked like an infinite series of universes embedded within universes embedded within universes. And along the way, he passes through um, our Earth, uh, falling into Lake Erie near Cleveland, Ohio, and then shrinks down further into the next level. Uh, so again, uh, other dimensions can mean different things, but you could have an infinite series of universes right in front of you right now that you can't see that are down levels or are up levels in size, which is another theme that, like I said, was, has been very popular in science fiction, especially uh, before. In fact, one movie they made, A Fantastic Voyage, based on a story by Isaac Asimov, where a group of scientists shrink down and go into the body of another scientist to perform an operation, I believe, on that scientist's brain. In physics and biology, we see that there is a, um, an element of nesting within nature, within reality, you yes. know, sort of like Russian dolls, you know, that, that is a yes, thing. Yes. And you see a lot of stuff uh, in the micro reflected in the macro and vice versa. So I think there, right. there you know, there is something to that in reality, uh, being, yes, being a yes. non-scientist non myself, but that seems to be. Well, yeah, and that may be true in some way that's a bit even stranger or more imaginative than people of the last century envisioned it of an atom being like a solar system. Uh, we could use a more contemporary notion that the universe uh, or the metaverse is something like a fractal, uh, a Mandelbrot set fractal, where when you penetrate down into the details of any particular shape in it, new details keep emerging. And it just goes on and on and on forever. And you could dive down into it to infinity and never come to the end. Uh, yeah, so we can have more contemporary ideas on it. Um, uh, that uh, aren't so sim aren't exactly like the notion that an atom is like a solar system. In terms of, well, I'm thinking again about the interdimensional idea, but also playing with time. Possibly, my it's in the uh, subgenre of like 
what would loosely be science fiction in this case, but certainly bringing in the supernatural and paranormal, which again, you know, get used in science fiction stories um, from time to time. There is a British TV series that ran from 1979 to 1982. And this, again, possibly my favourite TV series of all time. It was called Sapphire and Steel. Are you familiar with it or are you aware of it? Uh, no, I'm not. No. Okay, I'm, I'm going to send you some links because it's just astounding. It's basically two non-human agents that they appear to be human and they're in the present day Earth situation and they're, they're like troubleshooters going from scenario to scenario, from place to place and dealing with issues that are problems that arise when the fabric of reality of time and space begins to break down and, and, you know, do things it's not meant to do. You know, it's a lot to do with containing. They're, they're often talking about time is breaking through into reality. It's, it's a very strange series, but really, really compelling. It is the opposite of something to switch off to. You know, you really have to engage with it, but um, I absolutely love it. But in any event, you haven't seen it. Again, it deals with supernatural and paranormal themes, and these are something that people often associate with horror, but they do come into science fiction as well, as I mentioned. Yeah, um, I had a couple thoughts there on what you just said, Greg. Um, the storyline reminded me a bit of uh, Murray Leinster, who I already mentioned, uh, a popular science fiction writer of the last century, um, uh, a story he wrote called Sideways in Time. And in that story, uh, it is envisioned that there are uh, multiple temporal pathways of reality. And these different temporal pathways, uh, uh, history unfolds differently. And uh, But these different pathways, which is sort of like a quantum physics many worlds hypothesis, these different pathways... Uh, they uh, uh, lose their integrity and they begin to uh, drift into other pathways. And so the, uh, uh, the, the scenario in the story is that uh, the characters get thrust around between different alternative histories and these alternative histories begin to invade our particular historical pathway. Uh, so, uh, reality, uh, uh, fractures comes unglued and, uh, histories mix together, other, de- uh, other, uh, uh, other temporal lines. Um, uh, this also comes up, um, uh, in a, a more, um, a scientifically sophisticated way in, uh, Jack Williamson, who is, uh, uh, a very popular uh, science fiction writer, of the 20th century, who I talk about quite a bit in the two new volumes, uh, a story called The Legion of Time, in which, uh, informed by Williamson, informed by uh, quantum theory of there being a, a whole set of possible unfoldings of any particular event, Williamson envisions that different alternative futures may engage in wars among themselves moving into our time to create the favorable pathway so their future gets realized as opposed to other futures. So one could have multiple futures, which in some sense 
exist at least in some in, in some quasi uh, concrete fashion that vie with each other for um, uh, a solid definitive existence by jumping back to our time and attempting to manipulate our time so that their reality becomes true. So um, uh, what opens up there, and I think this is an important point to consider regarding science fiction, is that, and you bring, you've already brought up some examples, science fiction, when you look at its history, you find that it deals repeatedly with big questions about the full breadth and complexity of reality. Uh, we are acquainted with the reality that um, is accessible to us through our senses and intellect and our bodies. And there may be a lot more to reality than we apprehend in a, a normal fashion. And, and science fiction re, uh, repeatedly gets into, well, how else could I think about reality? Uh, what other possibilities of reality are there? How do they connect with our reality? Now, this isn't to be engaging in fantasy. This is to uh, be engaging in what could be scientifically credible notions of alternate realities, of multiple realities, of reality uh, having dimensions or features to it that extend beyond what we can access right now through our senses and technological instruments. But it isn't necessarily, in any sense, just make-believe. It has some plausibility to it, whatever that plausibility may be. One of the big sort of dichotomies, I suppose, uh, in science fiction stories that have been historically heavily influenced by the events, you know, the current events when the, when the stories are written, are is you know positive and negative visions. Uh, of the future of the earth and humanity. And these often take the form of utopian or dystopian stories. Dystopia, you know, being the 1984 Brave New World sort yes. of vision, even though some of the characters in those stories, stories believe they're creating a utopia or they're trying to. Often as not, there's, uh, technology can play into this as well. You know, a fear of what new technology may bring and then the great hope of what new technology may bring. And of course, the stories, there's a spectrum across, they don't have to be entirely positive or negative. Sometimes they're a bit of both, but this has always been, uh, um, an outlet for thinking about the future. You know, science fiction is, you know, what, what are we creating? Where are we going? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, the, uh, the genres of utopian and dystopian uh, uh, writings extend back to the very beginnings of science fiction uh, with uh, Francis Bacon's The New Atlantis. And I could even push it back to St. Augustine's The City of God, which is a utopian vision with uh, certain evolutionary themes <laughs> woven into it. But... Utopian writing has been around for centuries, uh, if not millennia. And um, uh, one of the interesting facets of uh, uh, these two forms of writing is that from our perspective, a vision of an alternate society, well, say in the future, for example, might look 
dystopian or negative. But that may be because of the limitations of the way we think and the values that we hold to. Uh, two very famous dystopias of the early 20th century, uh, uh, and aside from, you know, of course, 1984, but two of the most famous were uh, We uh, by Zamiatin and Brave New World by Huxley. And if you read those two novels closely, it's rather ambiguous when all is said and done, whether these are really uh, dystopian visions, which is usually the way they're interpreted, or whether they could be seen as utopian visions, but they run so counter to our present values that we find them abhorrent, but maybe they wouldn't be abhorrent to the people living in them. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, we have this long, long history of uh, utopian and dystopian thinking. And I should also just mention uh, that uh, uh, this theme uh, uh, brings up uh, the uh, point that uh, the utopian and dystopian novels and stories that have been written through the ages frequently reflect the fears and apprehensions and thoughts of the writers of those ages. So human society and its struggles and turmoil of the time have a big impact on what gets written in science fiction uh, as far as visions of future human societies. We have a history, at least since almost a hundred years ago, of due to our great anxiety over the dangers of the future, of having tons and tons of all different kinds of dystopias that have been written regarding the future of human society. Because our collective consciousness is indeed very fearful of the future of human society, whether it has to do with a, uh, a third world war, an atomic war, or the destruction of the environment, or the ascension of robots and computers that usurp the power of humanity. Uh, humans are fearful, have been very fearful of the future uh, uh, since uh, the uh, since the Great War, World War One, and uh, dystopias became much more uh, popular, or as a form of visions of future human society, than utopias did um, in the last uh, hundred years. Uh, and, and people will say that a lot of science fiction today is very dystopian too, uh, because of the fact that we have these negative feelings and fearful apprehensions over where the hell the world is heading, and a lot of people think the world is going down the tubes, and so people write visions, uh, uh, narratives of, of these fears that we have made manifest on paper now. I mentioned, mentioned earlier on that we would get to the subject of evolution, which is just interspersed, you know, uh, through science fiction's history. Now, the first time that I really had uh, was prompted to ponder evolution by a science fiction science fiction story was the the time machine by H G Wells and I saw that um 
that early, you know, the film adaptation and the depiction when he travels forward to whatever year it is and the, the Eloy and, and the Morlocks. I, I, that was my kind of favorite section of, I found the whole premise, you know, like, you know, riveting, fascinating, but that was my favorite section of the film. And it really made me think about, yeah, I mean, there's nothing to say that human evolution has come to an end, physical evolution or mental for that matter, but many people just imagine that we're so similar to, to early humans in many ways that, you know, we're kind of the, the finished product. But I mean, that's not logical to think like that, you know, because why would it have ended maybe for some metaphysical reason that we don't understand? But if we're talking in terms of biology and evolution, there's no reason to think it's ended. Uh, so the time machine really made me think about the potential for uh, evolution going forward. Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense, no sense at all, from uh, evo- the perspective of evolutionary science, that we are an endpoint, a culmination. If we look at our uh, history, our history has never been a culmination, an endpoint. It's always been an ongoing transformation. So, you know, history of, uh, of humans does not show ever coming to such a point. It's keep reality and humans keep changing. And I don't just simply mean human societies change, but the very physical and psychological makeup of humans keeps changing. Everything in the universe seems evolutionary. And indeed, in fact, if anything doesn't seem evolutionary, it would be the simplest and most primitive of things. We are exceedingly complex, and consequently, to think that we're the crown of creation is is egocentric, unrealistic, arrogant, and um, uh, and ridiculous. Okay, so we can we can realistically imagine that where we are today, uh, physically, psychologically, socially, uh, technologically, of course, is not going to be where we are a hundred, five hundred years from now, thousand years from now. The other thing we got to keep in mind is that if we take a short-term perspective, it might not seem that humans have changed that much. So if we just simply think back 50 years, 100 years, maybe we're about the same as we were. That's not necessarily true, but in the short run, you may not see the change. But if you jump back 50, 100,000 years, 200,000 years, a million years, there's incredible transformations that you see in the human line or pre-human lines. Uh, so uh, science fiction, um, uh, right from the get-go, has been influenced by the theory of evolution. In fact, you mentioned Vril, which was influenced by the theory of evolution, and that we may have different human evolutionary pathways, one which uh, occurred on the surface of the Earth, and a second one which actually moved more efficiently below the surface of the Earth. With H.G. Wells, he goes out 800,000 years to the Eloy and the Morlock, uh, and in fact, uh, our species, uh, bifurcates into two different forms, uh, 800,000 years in the future. Um, and, um, uh, and, th- and that's, it seems, that seems relatively realistic. And there, it, it has to do with, uh, adaptation to different kinds of living conditions based upon a social division which exists in our time between the rich elite who don't have to work and the working class, the lower working class, 
who have to uh, who have to supply for the rich elite, and those two groups are the two groups that lead to uh, uh, two different species. But evolution keeps coming up and coming up. In fact, Wells, uh, which uh, listeners uh, may or may not know, was intensely fascinated with the whole idea of evolution and wrote about it in a non-fictional form uh, in many, many essays uh, that he uh, published before he got to the time machine. Wells had thought out the idea of evolution in great depth as a preparation for writing that science fiction novel. Also, The War of the Worlds uh, thought out how could intelligence or life evolve on other planets differently than down here on the Earth. Yeah, so evolution is clearly a significant uh, um, uh, a scientific framework that has informed a lot of science fiction, uh, Wells being a perfect example that uh, so many of his novels and many of his writings uh, assume as a fundamental uh, uh, fact about humanity and the universe that we are evolutionary beings that exist in an evolutionary universe. He did that in an outline of history where he traces the evolution of humanity up to the present. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.